Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. All right, in this Come Follow Me episode, we are covering Alma chapters 53 to 63, 11 chapters that we're going to try and put into one episode here. What we're not going to do is cover the details of all of these battles. I think that that's something that's pretty common out there, and you can probably get that at other sources. What I want to focus on are some of the themes of Mormon and Helaman here that come through in what they've written and in these epistles that come from Helaman and Moroni and Bahorin. We can glean some principles from from these things as a follow-up to what we've already gone through here with Moroni and the title of Liberty. So here in 53, we continue with the theme of oath, covenant, and blood. We can go down here to verse 11, and this is where we get a beginning, uh, and it's kind of setting the stage for the 2,000 stripling warriors. And in verse 11, it says, And because of their oath, they had been kept from taking up arms against their brethren. This is the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. For they had taken an oath that they never would shed blood more. And according to their oath, they would have perished, yea, they would have suffered themselves to have fallen into the hands of their brethren, so the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are seeing all of the bloodshed. They're seeing all of the war efforts of all of the Nephites while they sit comfortably being protected by everyone and not participating in this defense. And so they're about to break their oath, right? This, this whole idea here is about these oaths. And they're about to break their oath, but Helaman persuades them not to. So you can imagine here Helaman is the high priest over all the land of of Nephi. He's concerned about the freedom of their religion and, of course, the lives of the Nephites. And it would be really nice to have this additional group here that would help fortify their troops, but he doesn't do it. He wants them to keep their oath to God. But... He talks with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and they have a number of sons who have not made this covenant. And again, we get this idea of these political groups here. In verse 16, it says, As many of these young men here that were able to take up arms, they called themselves Nephites. I think that's important. I think the authors are, are trying to let this be known to us, that these are political groups. And theological groups, but we naturally try to make this about race in a sense. Now, there are 2,000 of these young men, these stripling warriors, and what do they do? What are we told here in verse 18? Now, behold, there were 2,000 of those young men who entered into this covenant. There we get covenant again. We're, we're, we're something here that, that Mormon and Helaman are trying to get across to us. And they took their weapons of war to defend their country. As you can see here, in in, in the throes of war, 
and defense here, we can see this idea of, as we've talked about here, this dual message between the doctrine of Christ and liberty. We can see how liberty really is a big part of their religion. And we're going to move into that point more and more. It's not just a political stance. It is part of their religion. The doctrine of Christ really, in a sense, requires freedom. And really, again, this is all a, a continual play out of the war in heaven, where you had a tyrant with restrictions on liberty on one side so that he could, quote unquote, save everybody, right? And on the other side, you had Christ, the doctrine of Christ and liberty, but that there was going to be judgment. You were going to be held responsible for your choices. That goes along. When we think of the war in heaven and we think of this plan, right, the Father's plan that was represented by Christ, we can't think of that without the idea of agency and judgment. That war in heaven is what that's all about, right? Because on the other side of that, instead of Christ, you have a tyrant. So again, you've got the doctrine of Christ on one side here and tyranny on the other. And what is the whole doctrine of Christ about? Well, the doctrine of Christ makes no sense without agency, without liberty. But liberty requires judgment, just as we get in, in 2 Nephi chapter 2, which means that there are go there's going to be a punishment or consequences for bad choices. And on the other side of that, under tyranny, right, it's, it's something that says, no, we're not going to allow punishment. We're not going to allow these consequences because you're not going to have the same agency. And we can see that play out here amongst the Nephites and the Lamanites. So liberty is literally a part of the doctrine of Christ. And that means politically. That means in government. That means in representation of the people. Here's a quote that we get from Ezra Taft Benson. He says, Our stand, just like Moroni here, our stand for freedom is a most basic part of our religion. This stand helped us get to this earth. And our reaction to freedom in this life will have eternal consequences. Man has many duties, but he has no excuse that can compensate for his loss of liberty. And he really brings this in, ties it in, right? The most basic part of our religion because it's all anchored in agency. So here again in 17, and they entered in, this is the 2000 Stripling Warriors, they'd entered into a covenant to fight for liberty, for the liberty of the Nephites. And they wanted Helaman to be their leader. This is really interesting because you get, if you think back about these spiritual leaders, these prophets, they are warrior prophets, right? They are very well trained, it appears, in war and in, in, in battle. Here you're going to have Helaman leading these young men. And Helaman is the high priest of the church. His father, Alma the Younger, was also a warrior and fought in battles and led armies. His father, Alma the Elder, 
also fought in battles. And King Mosiah and King Benjamin and his father, King Mosiah, they all fought in battles and led armies. And then as we move over to chapter 54, we get these epistles between Amaron, who is the brother of Amalekiah, now the new leader, the new king of the Lamanites, and Captain Moroni. And Amaron writes an epistle requesting that there be an exchange of prisoners. And Moroni's response, again, is interesting, right? Again, we're laying down this idea of this holy war. He says here in verse 8, But as ye have once rejected these things, these things are the things of the church, especially the doctrine of Christ, and have fought against the people of the Lord, right? And he's saying, you are no longer of the people of the Lord. Remember, Amaron and his brother Amalekiah would have rejected the doctrine of Christ, would have rejected the church, and they're trying now to destroy the church. Moroni says, we will maintain our religion and the cause of our God. So again, what is that cause? It's the cause of the Christians that we've heard before. It is liberty. That is a big part of their cause, of the cause of God, the cause of their religion. And he says to Amaron, look, if you don't accept these things with these exchanges here where the Lamanites had taken women and children also as prisoners and the, the Nephites had only taken the soldiers. And so he wanted an exchange where he would offer one soldier up of the Lamanites back to Amaron and that, and that in return, Amaron would give up a soldier and his wife and his kids. The Malachi says, look, you have murdered my brother. Remember, Teancum put the javelin into his heart and I will avenge his blood. And then this gets really interesting what he's saying here. We can apply this to today in groups today and where their sympathies lie, right? Because there's always, this is always nuanced. It's not just black and white, not on the surface anyway, in these movements, in these ideas. There are sympathies. Where do you put your sympathy? And how do you use that, right? How do you stir things up with that sympathy? Look at what it says here in verse 17. For behold, this is Amaron speaking to Moroni, your fathers did wrong their brethren insomuch that they did rob them of their right to the government when it rightly belonged unto them. Now, why do these groups dissent and go to the Lamanites? There is sympathy toward them, right? Not a sympathy that the sons of Mosiah have, where they are there trying to preach to them and support them and help them remove the shackles of victimhood and hate and free them with the principles of the gospel and the doctrine of Christ, right? Obviously, there's a massive amount of sympathy there for them to risk their lives and and to go do this hard, very difficult work among the Lamanites. But instead, the sympathy is this. You wronged their fathers. It is an issue of victimhood. Right? There is a sympathy there from these dissenters, it appears to me, from the Nephites. As they go over to the Lamanites, they sympathize with this hatred. They sympathize for this drive for revenge. They sympathize with the idea of oppression, not in a good way. 
right? But in a way of hatred, not in a way of relational covenant, lifting each other up, but in a way of division. Now, why do I say this? Because Amoron is not a Lamanite by birth. And he's also not a Nephite as far as descendants of Nephi, Jacob, or Joseph, his brothers, Nephi's brothers. He is a Zoramite, right? He is descendant from Zoram. And again, we get this break off there of, of those who are not of the lineage of Nephi, Jacob, and Joseph, who are the ones that rule in the land of Zarahemla. So these things are very nuanced, right? These power plays and the dynamics that are going on here, these, this politicking, has a lot to do with let's cast stones at those who are in charge. And you can see how it would be easy to rile certain people up if they're not in charge. And if those that are in charge are all about the doctrine of Christ and of the gospel, it's easy to see how people are going to go against that or a lot easier to see how they're going to go against that. Now, of course, there's, there's spiritual reasons why they would go against it as far as not having to have judgment on yourself. That, that's, that's, that's pretty tempting, right, to believe in that. No judgment. You shall not surely die. But it's also a part of the idea of politics. And so they reinforce each other and these divisions between the dissenters of the Nephites and the remainders, the remaining people of the Nephites. And Amoron tells Nephi in his epistle here, look, we're going to wage a war which shall be eternal, either to the subjecting the Nephites to our authority, right, there's the tyranny, or to their eternal extinction. And then we get this as far as a theological difference here, a doctrinal difference. He says, and as concerning that God whom you say we have rejected, well, that would be Christ. That would be Jehovah as the Savior of the world, the Messiah. He says, behold, we know not such a being, and neither do ye. See how again and again the doctrine comes into play here. They're writing epistles about a war against each other, and they're both talking about doctrine in these epistles. And then he follows up with this, which is very common of all of those that are of or are similar to the order of Nehor. That would be all the Nephi dissenters. He says, and if it so be that there is a devil, which he would not believe in, right? No hell. If there is a devil and a hell, behold, will he not send you there to dwell with my brother whom ye have murdered, whom ye have hinted that he hath gone to such a place. Right? So again, they don't believe in a hell. They don't believe in judgment. They don't believe in consequences. This is the war in heaven. When you think about the war in heaven and the idea of Lucifer saying that there is no devil right, himself, why would he be saying that? He's saying that because he's saying the same thing he said in the war in heaven. There is no judgment. So Moroni is furious over this attitude from Amaron because he knows that their sole objective is to conquer them and to put them under tyranny and to destroy their church. You know, Amaron can say all these things about his brother. He can talk about these wrongs that have been made to the fathers by, by Nephi and Joseph and Jacob. 
in sympathy aligned with the Lamanites. But again, all he's doing is pulling up these sympathetic causes as he's out trying to conquer them. And you can see how those two things are conflated. We see that all the time even today, right? It is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so Moroni decides on a strategy here. And by the way, this is interesting because Moroni over and over and over again goes to strategy, real sound strategy to fight off the Lamanites. And if he wouldn't have done this, it would have never worked, right? They never would have fought off the Lamanites and Amalekai and Amaron without strategy. We might apply that to ourselves. How is it that we would use strategy to fight off attacks on our faith, on our church? I think that's a good question. Now, the Nephite prisoners were, were held in a place called Gid, and they had these Lamanite guards surrounding them and watching over them. And so Moroni's strategy here is to send over one of those servants of the king of the Lamanites that were chased out at the time of Amalekiah when Amalekiah's men killed the king and said it was one of the servants. Remember, they all ran over to the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi and joined with them. And this servant, this servant of the king of the Lamanites, his name is Laman. And they send him over to the guards of the city of Gid. And by the way, why are they sending him? Well, because he's going to know their ways. He's going to be able to talk to them in a way that, you know, hey, this really is one of our guys, right? So they send him over with wine. And, and we might think to ourselves sometimes, this just seems too easy that they're able to do this. Come on, they bring him over wine and they get drunk and then they're able to get everybody out. But we want to go over a couple things here to consider. So he's able to kind of rub shoulders with these guards and talk to them. And he might bring up things from the past and history. And then the guards say, look, we're really glad you brought this wine because we are weary. Now, why would wine be an important thing if you're weary? Think about this. These are, there's a high stress level every single day. They are exhausted every single day on both sides of this battle, of this war. And so wine is a way to increase morale. It would, right? Wine would increase morale. Wine gets rid of some of the pains. Emotional, physical, everything. And it's a very important part of war, anciently. You would never anciently go into war without alcohol. You just wouldn't do it. So little reverse psychology here. Layman says to the guards, no, let's just hold on here until we go to battle against the Nephites. What an interesting statement. Why would you need the wine when you go to battle? Let's continue here. But this saying only made them more desirous to drink of the wine. For said they, we are weary, therefore let us take of the wine, and by and by we shall receive wine for our rations. This is from their leaders in the army, in the Lamanite army, which will strengthen us to go against the Nephites. They're saying, look, we'll get when we go to battle, we'll get our own rations then anyway. We want this now. So they're going to receive rations. See, the Lamanite army has the wine for rations already. So think about when you're getting ready to go to battle. You're riling up your troops. 
right? You're going to want them to have a little bit of alcohol. Why? Because in so many ways, it's going to remove, and I'm not talking about a moral issue here. I'm just talking about history. In so many ways, it's going to remove your inhibitions, your fear as you go into battle. And so you're going to be, not that you're drunk, that wouldn't work, but if you have some alcohol in you, enough to reduce the level of pain, of stress, of fear, right? then that's going to embolden the whole army and get them really ready to go, as long as you don't overdo it. And, and again, this is very common. In fact, some anciently in the northern areas of like Scandinavia, they would give drugs that would kind of make you completely crazy or berserk. And that's where that term comes from. Berserk is from the northern armies that would go into battle after taking drugs, natural drugs, and they would just be going berserk. So wine here is not just some strange thing like, oh yeah, well, they just really like the wine, and which they do, but it, it makes all the sense in the world how this happens. So they drink a lot. They're completely drunk. They fall asleep. And in the meantime, over the, overnight, the Moroni's army throws in weapons into the prisoners inside the walls. And so when the guards wake up, they're there with the prisoners, and, in, and the roles have changed, right? They've switched. The guards are now the prisoners, and they're surrounded by the army, and they have inside the Nephite prisoners have weapons. And so they get these prisoners without the exchange even, through strategy. And then he takes those prisoners and he has them labor, right? He puts them to work, and they're the ones that dig the ditches and throw up the mounds of dirt and build up the fencing all around the cities. He's going to have them work. Then the next epistle we get is that of Helaman, right, who's leading the Stripland warriors. And he's writing this to Moroni to tell him what's going on with all of their battles and with these new Stripling warriors. And so we kind of get this account, which seems just all historical, but I want to bring out just a few points here. And again, I'm not going to go into a lot of the depth of, of these battles. We're going to see new names that are brought in, both place names and personal names. So, for example, we get Antipas. Antipas is who the stripling warriors are going to join in battle. But we have the word anti here and then pus, right? P-U-S. And it's almost like P-A. So that's the first name to notice here. We're going to get all these new P-A names, which I think is interesting because they all, you know, not all of them, but they, they seem to join together here all in these few chapters. And then when we get down here to a list of many of these cities that the Lamanites have taken possession of, one of those cities is Kumani, right? C-U-M-E-N-I. We get these new names that are similar to Kumani in these few chapters. Another one of them is Antipara. We had the person Antipus. Now we get Antipara, right? That P-A again. And this is where we get the famous battle, right, of the city of Antipara, where Helaman and his stripling warriors act as a decoy, and they run, right, and draw out 
the largest army of the Lamanites out of Antipara because they see that they can easily conquer them. Well, Helaman and these young men, they run and they are moving, marching for their lives as the army of the Lamanites pursues them. And very quickly they see, that is the Lamanite army, sees that Antipas and his army is, are pursuing them. And so they've drawn them out of Antipara. And we're told that Helaman and the stripling warriors, they're not going to turn left, they're not going to turn right, they're just going forward. They know that if they get, they know that if the Lamanites catch them, that they're going to die, right? Because they're going to be overwhelmed by the pure number of the Lamanites. And the Lamanites don't go left or right because they don't want to get caught by Antipas behind them. And so eventually, Helaman and the stripling warriors realize that they're not being pursued anymore. And so Helaman has to ask these young men, what say ye, my sons? Will ye go against them to battle? Right? In other words, if they turn and Antipas has not caught the Lamanites, they're going to their deaths. And Helaman is saying, look, if Antipas has caught them, then Antipas probably cannot withstand on their own the Lamanite army. And so the stripling warriors say to him, Father, they see him as a father figure, behold, our God is with us, and he will not suffer that we should fall. Then let us go forth. We would not slay our brethren if they would let us alone. <laughs> Therefore, let us go, lest they should overpower the army of Antipas. So regardless of the risks that they're looking at, they take courage in their faith in God. And he, they say here, and Helaman says, look, they've never fought, yet they did not fear death. And they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their own lives. Yea, they had been taught by their mothers that if they did not doubt, God would deliver them. Obviously an incredible lesson here. And so the stripling warriors rehearse unto Helaman all the words of their mothers. And they said, we do not doubt our mothers knew it. In other words, what they're saying is true that they will be delivered. And so they return. They see that Antipas is starting to fall. He's actually been killed. And the army of Antipas is starting to fall to the Lamanites. The stripling warriors come to the rear on the Lamanites, and they end up beating them in battle. And Helaman finds out when everything's done. But behold, to my great joy, there had not one soul of them fallen to the earth. Definitely a miracle. Yea, and they had fought as if with the strength of God. Now, I want to go back to this point again about liberty, right? They're willing to give up their lives, and, and, and we're told from Helaman that they thought more about the liberty of their fathers than they did of their own lives, right? This is a noble cause. This is not just a noble cause. It is a religious cause to them, this liberty. And again, it naturally goes with the doctrine of Christ. If we go to James in the New Testament... James chapter 2. This is where we hear about faith without works is dead. And we're talking a lot about be doers of the law, right? Not just speakers of the law. And your behavior matters and your choices matter. And we get this in, in, in verse 12. So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Well, what is the law of liberty? This is something that is very foundational to Christianity. The law of liberty is saying that we are given agency, 
that God gives us agency and that it is precious. It is not something that is forced. Now, you have seen in other religions where religion is forced onto others. You have seen Christianity in history forced onto others. This is not the law of liberty. But over time, the law of liberty and the doctrine of Christ has taken more and more hold, especially in the West. Well, let's go over this law of liberty just a little bit. Irenaeus was a father who lived in the second century BC. He actually learned from Polycarp, who very possibly learned from John himself, John the Beloved, John the Revelator. And in his work called Against Heresies, this is what he says. He focuses on the idea found in Matthew 23, 37, of how often would I have gathered thy children together and ye would not, right? As a hen would to her children. Now, Joseph Smith, interestingly enough, talks about this as a temple phrase. But what Irenaeus here is saying is that, look, how often would I have gathered thy children? In other words, I'm not forcing you. I am always extending my arm there and it is always there for you, but you have your own decision. So Irenaeus is going over how this is a crucial part of the gospel. The law of liberty is not a law, politi- a political law. It is secondarily, but it is a law of religion. It is a law of Christianity, just as Ezra Taft Benson says. Liberty is a basic part of our religion as Latter-day Saints. And Irenaeus expounds on this. He says, God made man free from the beginning. We think about the Garden of Eden, right? You get your own choice. You choose. For God never uses force. He placed in man the power of election, even as in the angels. Glory and honor, he says, to all who do good. And it is due them because they could not because they could have done evil. So again, going back to the war in heaven, if you can't do evil, then you really can't do good. You have to be able to do good, and those options have to be there for you. You have to have agency. You have to have opposition in all things. Now, if God made some men good and some bad simply by nature, which some believe. There would be nothing praiseworthy in their future, their virtue, or blameworthy in their vice. For that being their nature, they could not do otherwise. Right? If, if, if God says, hey, I'm making this good person and they're just going to be acting good, why is there a reward for them? That's not really true righteousness because there's no choice for them. So there has to be choice and there has to be the ability to choose evil. You have to have that. But since to all is given equally, the power of doing good or bad exactly as they choose, they are rightly praised or blamed for what they do. That is why the prophets appeal to men to do good and to shew evil. And again, we get back to this point of like with those that are the dissenters of the Nephites that follow the idea of the order of Nehor. There's no judgment, right? You can't do bad. 
Well, of course, if you can't do bad, then you can't do good. There's no righteousness. And there has to be consequences for our actions, good or bad. Again, this goes back to our discussion that we've had about all of the tragedies in the world that God allows to happen. It's a must. So this is the law of liberty. And from the time of the war in heaven and every conflict since then in all of our politics and dissensions, this law of liberty is grounded in the doctrine of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be Christian or even religious to believe in liberty. That's not what I'm saying. That's certainly not the case. But ultimately, that truth of liberty is grounded in the doctrine of Christ. It is the way it is supposed to be, which is why it is so hard to hold on to in this world. Now, the epistle of Helaman continues over in chapter 57, and they have a battle over the city of Cumani. And in this battle, he says about the 2000, now 2060 stripling warriors, he says, and they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. Yea, and even according to their faith, it was done unto them. And I did remember the words which they said unto me that their mothers had taught them. We see, obviously, that for boys and for girls, the incredible influence that a mother can have over their children. And we could probably say that without those mothers, the Nephites may have never won this war, right? Or at least they would have certainly lost a lot of their land and a lot of these cities. Now, we do get this after this battle also, going into blood here again. It's, I think, it's, again, it's just interesting that this is mentioned. In 25, it says, And it came to pass that there were 200 out of my 2,060 who had fainted because of the loss of blood. To me, this is a reference. Not that it didn't happen. I'm sure it did. But it's a reference to their covenant. It's a reference to their covenant that they made when they went to battle. Nevertheless, according to the goodness of God and to our great astonishment and also the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. So they're spilling their blood over there into the covenant. And they are protected because of the covenant that was made by the Lord, in a sense, through their mothers. In chapter 58, we just get some reminders about what they're doing and what their cause is here in the battle. It is to maintain our lands and our possessions and our wives and our children and the cause of our liberty. Now, while they're fighting for this cause of liberty, they are concerned because they're not getting reinforcements. And so it says here in verse 36, And if it is not so, behold, we fear that there is some faction in the government, right? That they do not send more men to our assistance because we know there's more men. Now, why would they have that fear? Well, the reason they have that fear is because of what they've gone over previously. Right with the kingmen and with all of the dissensions that happen over and over again, there are factions, political factions, inside of the government that are vying for power. So in 59, Moroni is very happy with the success of Helaman and seeing that these stripling warriors had been preserved and they had been able to go back and get all of these cities back into the possession and rule of the, of the Nephites. 
But then he loses another major city, Nefaiha. And seeing that Helaman was not getting reinforcements, he's furious with the government. And I think it's interesting that Mormon includes this epistle because it's brutal. It's not true what's happening here. But Mormon seems to want to show Moroni's feelings on this. And he is going to go after the chief judge on this, whose name is another PA name, Pahoran. And he does not hold back. And he says, look, if you have decided because of your own choices to hold back our troops so that we can die while you are sitting comfortably in Zarahemla, then I'm going to take my troops and come into Zarahemla and battle all of you and slay you. He says, I don't fear you at all. I fear God. So once Pahoran receives this epistle from Moroni, he responds with his own epistle. And he says, look, I am holed up here in this city of Gideon. I've been chased out. By who? By those king men. Right? Again, those that want tyranny and are against the descendants of Nephi and are against the church. So they've got problems from without and problems from within right now. And these kingmen have appointed a king, and he sits now on the throne in Zarahemla. So Moroni keeps some of his troops there to guard these cities. And then he takes others, and he marches into Zarahemla. So Moroni leaves some of his troops there to guard these cities, and then he takes others, and he marches towards Zarahemla. And on his way, he raises again the title of liberty, that Josephite banner. And he gets a number of more men gathered together as he goes to all these villages and cities to go to war against the kingmen in Zarahemla. And he makes his stop in Gideon, which is where Pahoran is, and gathers all of the troops there to add to the strength of what he has gathered. And he heads to Zarahemla. And the man that was made king there is another PA name here. It's Pacus. And Pacus is slain in the battle along with a number of the kingmen. And a number of the other king men were executed according to the law. What law is that? Well, that's a law of treason. That is still the law today in many countries, right? Death for treason, including the United States. But we're told here by Helaman or Mormon in verse 10 of 62, and thus it became expedient that this law should be strictly observed for the safety of their country. Yea, and whosoever was found denying their freedom was speedily executed according to the law. So that can be very controversial today, but if you're trying to take freedom away from the people and you are treasonous, their, their penalty was death. So with this battle being won over the kingmen, there's a little bit of a respite with war for some time. And remember, we're marching toward the time of the birth of Christ here. We're now moving all the way down to, by the end of this chapter, about 52 BC. So as we're going through this, think about the history of what has happened here as we get to that moment where, surprise, surprise, remember the conflict is the doctrine of Christ. Surprise, surprise, the minority of the people are going to be put to death, right, if the sign of the birth of Christ doesn't show. We shouldn't be surprised by that at all. That is not a recent phenomenon as far as the hatred at that point, at the birth of Christ, for those that believe in the doctrine of Christ. It's throughout the entire Book of Mormon that we see this. And so with this time, we get Helaman reestablishing the church again. 
He's able to go out, leave the battlefield, and go to the spiritual battlefield of, again, reestablishing the church. And why does he need to do that? Because the dissensions are not just political. The dissensions are from the church. He's constantly battling with this. And this is where we get the short story of Haggoth here, who leaves and creates a boat. We're told that he's an exceedingly curious man. Remember what we said curious meant? It means very skillful. Right, and so he makes boats, and and they head off. We even get some leaders of the church saying that this was where some of the Polynesians come from, and we can't end here, even in this time of peace, without talking about more dissension. Down here in sixty three fourteen, it says, and it came to pass also in this year that there were some dissenters who had gone forth unto the Lamanites. This is a continual stream and they were stirred up again to anger against the Nephites right so the dissenters do this again and the Lamanites come down to war against the people of Moronihah and they're beaten and driven back and this ends the 30 and ninth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi so again we've got almost 40 years here since Nehor in year one of the reign of judges started to cause problems. This just never ends. How do you bring a people together of different backgrounds and heritages and beliefs? It's hard. And so this is the end of the account of Alma and his son Helaman. And to me, as I go through this again, I can't help but see that this is not a message of just how do we individually become stronger spiritually, although that's definitely there? Or how do we create a metaphor about how the strategy of Captain Moroni worked for fortifying these cities? And how do we apply that to our individual spiritual lives? I think that's a really important point. But the overriding theme, the message consciously given by Alma, Helaman, and Mormon are that of the doctrine of Christ and liberty. And liberty being a crucial, basic part of the church and of the doctrine of Christ. I'll talk to you next time.